2: Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tian Duyeb and just like Love Child of Bagpus and an old jar of Lemon Curd, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, I too have made a 10 step plan for a successful Brexit that I would like to unveil on this week's show. So, are you ready? Cause here it is. Step 1 Brexit's gonna be great because you know things and stuff. And oh, look over there! A puppy! It's got such a small face step two la 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 la. can't hear you step three right well uh we'll just take all the money that no one has and imagine someone has it somewhere else right i mean bloody hell it's not hard step four brexit what brexit i've no idea what you're talking about step five. Oh, that brexit right oh well i wouldn't worry about that to be honest Step 6 Oh, sorry, Uh, I've got a call on the other line Hang on a minute Step 12T Brexit means you can make up numbers if you want Here's another one, Thrifty Saint. Step 10 Clap your hands and say I believe in Brexit at least 15 times a day Step 725 Hey, look, the original Ghostbusters still exists Even if you didn't like the new one How's about that? Do you feel better about it all now? No? Bloody traitor Yes, like someone else's floater during your bath time, Boris Johnson decided he should wade back into the Brexit debate, despite absolutely no one asking him to. Even with an attempted terrorist attack in Parsons Green earlier that day, Bojo and The Telegraph decided that actually Friday night was the best time to print a veritable essay of 4,000 words on Boris's vision for a bold, thriving Britain enabled by Brexit. The thing is, no one actually needs another vision from Boris Johnson, a neoliberal flump whose previous visions included a failed elitist government bridge project that cost 37 million pounds before being scrapped, a failed island airport project in the Thames estuary that would have polluted London loads, cost silly amounts and been harder to get to than Heathrow, and of course the Emirates airline cable car in the only part of London where there's fuck all to see on the ground let alone from the sky. And actually, Boris's essay in the Telegraph and 10-step plan for a successful Brexit contain just as airy-fairy nonsense ideas as his other ventures, with step 7 of his plan being, Brexit will be a success because Brexit will be a success. Yeah, nice one. Why will Brexit be a success? Oh, mate, because it'll be a success, stupid. Easy, innit? I mean, with insights like that, I'm amazed he's not in charge of all Brexit negotiations. And while we're at it, why not put 90s reggae star Bitty McLean in charge of the Met Office as he's fully able to explain to us that when it's raining, it's raining. Johnson, which is appropriately US slang for penis, also brought back the big lie that went around the UK on a bus fooling people into making life-changing decisions. No, I don't mean the adverts for the Emoji Movie that promised it was going to be an adventure beyond words, which is definitely wrong because actually the Emoji Movie could be summed up by a number of four-letter words. I mean, the promise that by leaving the EU, the UK gains back £350 million a week that could be used for the NHS. Yes, the lie that was discredited by everyone, including pro-leave campaigners, pretty much the morning after the referendum result, and doesn't take into account any rebates or EU spending on the UK, or you know, any facts. I mean, you sort of wonder why they didn't just go the whole hog with that lie, or rather unicorn, and say that if we left the EU, we'd just get £70 bazillion back, plus every person in the UK would start shitting gold automatically. The UK Statistics Authority has said that they are disappointed that Boris used the £350 million figure again, but I mean really, expecting Boris to take any notice of criticism from the UK Statistics Authority is like expecting a returning character's important advice to have any effect on a naive teenage virgin in a horror movie sequel. Despite many suggesting Boris's article is another bid from him to become Prime Minister, he insisted he is all behind Theresa May. Without commenting on how I agree that he is definitely all behind, it's more likely that he made that statement because all behind is his favourite position to be in for stabbing people. And in other, actually more important news, there was another attempted terrorist attack in London at Parsons Green Tube Station when an explosive on a train prematurely went off, injuring several people and then several more were injured during the evacuation of the station. US president and prolapse with a loud hailer Donald Trump was quick to his Twitter to exclaim that it was the work of a loser terrorist who is in the sights of Scotland Yard before adding that the internet is their main recruitment tool so it must be cut off god wait till he finds out how monster.co.uk use it it'll blow his mind Arrests have already been made of a man suspected to have planted the bomb, and the terror level was briefly risen to critical and then back to severe in the same day, probably due to the arrests, and on account of if we're going to be afraid of young men using the internet to explode prematurely, then we'll have no time to do anything else ever. President of the European Commission and Parallel Universe old John Oliver, Jean-Claude Juncker, has said that Britain will regret leaving the EU, forgetting that as Brits, we don't openly regret anything, which is part of the reason that this is all happening. Juncker commented that the EU will move on from Brexit, so we can expect a heavy rebound EU session where they start having relations with other countries briefly before being very comfortable being themselves, none of which they'll regret either as it's Europe and they're far more sensible about that sort of thing. UK Prime Minister, and exactly what Philip K. Dick has been warning us about for years, Theresa May, will be making a speech to the EU in Florence on the 22nd, an ideal location for someone whose vanities really need a severe bonfiring. Meanwhile, former Chancellor, and exactly what the TV series V has been warning us about for years, George Osborne, got into trouble after telling Esquire, you know, a magazine for men who snort substance rather than have any, that he will not rest until Theresa May is chopped up in bags in his freezer. Which is a ridiculous thing to say, as you can't chop up a robot, you have to dismantle it shadow secretary for State of Health and the political version of the one show in that Every Time She's on TV You Wish She Wasn't, Diane Abbott, got into trouble for saying the N-word on the Good Morning Britain television show after using it as an example of the abuse that she gets online, prompting many to abuse her online about it because apparently two wrongs make a tweet. Many were angry that she had said such offensive language on television on Good Morning Britain, which is on at a time when children might be watching. Which is a very odd opinion to have, as I can't think of anything more offensive than starting your day watching Good Morning Britain, a show co-hosted by professional Klegner, Piers Morgan. Or, you know, I can't think of anything more offensive than ending your day like that. Or middling it. Or, you get my point. The Grenfell inquiry started last week with Martin Moore-Bick, a man who sounds constantly in demand of Byros, saying that he would not be appointing anyone from the Grenfell community, as it would risk undermining impartiality. I assume he'll also be ignoring accounts from the fire brigade too then and on the other side everyone in Kensington and Chelsea Council as well and then only collating vox pops from the cast of Gogglebox after they'd seen about it on the news. As we head into conference season, Liberal Democrat leader and best remembered for playing Vizini in Princess Bride, Vince Cable, has said that he could be Prime Minister. I guess that's in the same way that I could as well or you know you if everyone else in the world died. And lastly, former White House press secretary and frightened Chipolata, Sean Spicer, made an appearance at the Emmy Awards in the US, prompting much anger that it was normalising his role that he played in the White House that, if you remember, included outright lying and belittling the Holocaust. However, I'm pretty sure his appearance at the Emmys made Trump very happy, because in amongst awards being handed out to the amazing people of colour, such as Donald Glover or Riz Ahmed, who've worked stupidly hard and are now being deservedly rewarded for it, most attention somehow went to a white guy who told fibs and is mostly known for being shit at his job and if that's not an analogy for America today I really don't know what is. Oh hello you. How are you? Really? Oh how dear. Have you tried trepanning? I've heard that helps. Anyway, thanks again for listening to the show, and hello to all the new listeners that joined as of last week, thanks to Parpol Bro being in the iTunes New and Noteworthy section again, which is very nice. Um, the show is not new, so I'm hoping that it means we're noteworthy. I guess there is every chance that we're just and. Ugh. Anyway, if you are new and you do have time, do check out older episodes for the interviews, which are all still relevant, and my material on those episodes, which definitely isn't. Um, but they are still all available on Acast or iTunes or Pocket Casts, or your mind, if you think hard enough. No think harder. No, no, no. Think harder. Yeah, there you go. And as I mentioned last week, uh, I am working on a website with proper info on each episode as well. So hopefully that will come along soonish. Until then, I will pop all notes and links mentioned in each episode onto the Twitter and Facebook. And mega thanks once again to Cat Day for doing the linear notes for last week's show, which is very, very helpful indeed. Thank you also to Sean for donating to the Patreon last week, which means he can now access an MP3 of my Ed Fringe show, which I'm only going to leave on there till the end of the month. So if you fancy that perk slash punishment, uh, head to patreon.com forward slash parpol bro. Or if you just want to send me money with no reward, like a Samaritan of the pod world, head to ko ko-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro, and buy me a coffee. Um, not really buy me a coffee, actually. It's giving me the money equivalent to a coffee, as sending a coffee through the post would be very tricky. And I'm not sure that my my postman would be remotely happy. Although, considering what time of day he usually gets my post to me, it will be fairly cold by then anyway. um, But look... If you can donate, uh, it all really does help. And um, as I have mentioned before, I have used some of your donations to get my ticket to the Labour conference, which I'm going to next week for one whole day. Uh, And I'm going to try and get some recordings there if I can. Now, some people have asked me online why I'm only going to the Labour one and I'm not going to the Conservative conference. Um, And the answer to that is because it is tons more expensive, which I can't afford because not enough people donate. Um, But also because either I need a press pass or I would have to become a Tory party member, um, which I... I think would be very funny for about five minutes, and then really despairing for every second afterwards. Um, and obviously, I'm not going to the Liberal Democrats uh, conference for the same reason that no one likes going to a comedy show. You know, if they're the only people in the audience. Of course, uh, if you can't afford to donate, then please, please, please do give the show a review on iTunes or Stitcher, or just tattoo it on your leg. And yeah, I ask this every week. And yes, it's boring. But until I get every possible review by every human being on the planet, yes, International Space Station crew, you are exempt, even. Though I know you have great Wi-Fi, then I will keep asking for reviews as it really, really does help get more listeners along. Huh. And that is it for admin this week. Quite a brief one. Um, if you are one of the handful of people who listens to this in Ireland or one of several people that listen to this in Northern Ireland and want to abuse the current lack of border until it disappears with Brexit um, I'm in Dublin at the Dublin Fringe on Friday and Saturday doing uh, kids shows there with Beck Hill and also on shore on Friday night with Beck Hill doing our solo shows if you fancy coming along to either of those things. Um, and then I'm going to be at Cork at the Cork Fringe on Sunday with very much the same stuff. So that's will be a lot of fun Um, however it does mean that next week's show may be a little truncated one as I'm not going to be flying back to the UK till the Monday which is the day that I normally do this thing Um, but I have got an interview booked in so there will at least be that hooray for the food for your ears I shall not let you starve um, on this week's show, I'm talking to Dave Powell from the excellent podcast Sustainer Babble, um, and we're talking all about natural disasters. No, not my comedy career, the other type. Uh, and also, there is a little look at Germany before the upcoming Bundestag elections. Oh, and of course, there's more Brexit because it never, ever ends. Sorry, I mean, it will be a success because it will be a success. But before all of that, get your bib on because we're tucking into this. This. The inquiry into the Grenfell Tower fire started last week and Grenfell survivors are already concerned that they've not been listened to. This may be because Chairman of the Inquiry, Martin Moore-Bick, a former Lord Justice of the Court of Appeal, opened the inquiry by saying it would provide answers to how the disaster happened and that he would not shrink away from making recommendations that could lead to prosecutions. And by this point you're probably thinking, well it, that sounds pretty good, I mean what are you on about? Yeah, it does, but then he went on to say that he wouldn't be appointing any survivors of the fire to the panel as it would risk impartiality. Hmm. Now, I understand how that works in Indio's cop shows where the cop whose pal has been murdered gets taken off the case because they're too close, man. You're too close. But in this case, uh, the survivors are people who've been trying to highlight concerns about the tower for many years. They've been dealing with a neglectful council and they were, upsettingly for them, there when it happened and therefore you think having someone who's been through all that on the panel would probably provide reassurance and support to those giving evidence it would also give a view from the residents perspective who will undoubtedly have a different and more important opinion than say those who commissioned the fire risk cladding uh, in order to save some money or it might provide a perspective different to that of Martin Moore a judge who in 2014 ruled that Westminster Council could rehouse a tenant 50 miles away in Milton Keynes something that was then luckily overruled by the Supreme Court few because sending anyone to Milton Keynes is the sort of thing that would be a human rights abuse in almost any other country. I mean, how can one place have so many bloody roundabouts? A group of lawyers that represent victims and survivors of the fire and call themselves BME Lawyers for Grenfell have expressed how concerned they are with the lack of diversity in the inquiry team who are so far all white and not at all from the area, which doesn't really represent the community around Grenfell at all. It'd be like having Richard Branson chair an inquiry over people who need public health care and fucking hate hot air balloons. The final panel is yet to be announced, but considering there is a high chance the Grenfell Tower fire would have been avoided if concerns of residents had been listened to in the first place, the inquiry panel should really look at themselves first when investigating possibilities of willful neglect. I've mentioned them before on the show, but do check out Inquest, who are providing support and campaigning for a proper inquiry for the Grenfell Tower community. They can be found at inquest.org.uk and at inquest underscore org on Twitter. Also BME Lawyers for Grenfell are at bme lawyers number 4 grenfell.wordpress.com and at bme law 4 number 4 grenfell on Twitter. Do go and support them both. Home Secretary and cross between Super Nanny and Darth Vader, Amber Rudd, was accused of contempt of court this week. And no, this isn't just because I'm sure she likes to march around shouting, I am the law! Instead, this is due with Samin Bigzad, a 22-year-old asylum seeker who was living and caring for his father in Ramsgate, Kent, until he was suddenly flown back to Afghanistan, despite a High Court injunction forbidding that that should happen because it would put his life in danger. Because that's how much Amber Rudd wants to make sure there's British jobs for British workers, right? She even gives extra work to airlines when it's illegal to do so. The Taliban had threatened Samin's life after he worked for a construction company with Afghan and American contracts. And so he fled to the UK, where, you know, people can only get angry with construction workers because you can't just take a tea break when I'm stuck in traffic because of your roadworks. I can see you, you know. I can see you. Sorry. Anyway, the Home Office, however, ignored an order made by the High Court not to send him back to Kabul and instead did exactly that. While in Kabul, Samin had to hide in his hotel room as men with guns arrived at the foyer to look for him. Two more High Court judges made orders to bring him back to the UK and the Home Office tried to have those orders set aside yet again. And Salmon finally returned to the UK on Sunday night at the end of an in-out-in-out terrifying version of the hokey-cokey. So, luckily, Salmon is now safe, and the High Court have commenced court proceedings against the Home Office for contempt of court. The Home Office have refused to comment on what is an ongoing case, which I guess means they might be trying to book themselves flights that they really shouldn't be on ASAP. It's so bizarre that a place so keen on getting rid of people is called the Home Office. Maybe they should go for, like, Eject Centre or something like that. Or perhaps at least go a bit more like a home that wants to get rid of people and just play really miserable music until everyone leaves. If you only ever watch Hollywood films, you'd be forgiven for assuming that natural disasters are an excessive and exhausting way to find the love of your life, or, you know, rebuild your estranged relationship with your scientist father. However, in reality, they aren't particularly useful for either of these things, and instead seem far more effective as nature's way of telling a bunch of people that they really need a swimming pool in their homes. You know, if you still have a home after the hurricane, earthquake, tsunami, or swarm of locusts is done with you. In recent weeks, the US and Caribbean have been subject to Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma, both of which sound like very accomplished snooker players or DJs for the Beastie Boys. But sadly, instead were devastatingly powerful winds that have ruined the Mexican Gulf, various Caribbean islands, the Florida Keys, and in the case of Harvey, flooded Texas. Many residents have been displaced and made homeless, and in the case of Harvey, caused mass leaking of hazardous materials into residential areas. Which, again, if you've watched enough Hollywood films, might suggest that, hey, maybe the Ninja Turtles will be created saving everyone. But again, sadly, in reality, it just means a lot of people are at terrible risk. And of course, these are hugely political issues because of politics's effect on climate change. And generally, like with Hurricane Katrina and Wilmer in 2005, the main people that are affected are the poor and marginalised. Despite evidence pointing directly at all of this being the result of climate change, there's still very little reporting in the media that climate change is the cause. There are indications this week that Donald Trump may keep the US in the Paris Agreement, finally, but we can't be certain if he will, or even if he does, if it'll make any difference if he can barely control his own endless gas emissions. With temperatures and sea levels rising, Arctic ice melting and Hurricane Maria looking set to cause further devastation to countries on the North Atlantic West Coast, I thought this week we could do with some knowledge on what is happening, why it affects who it does and whether or not the smartest thing to do would be to brush up on your swimming skills and rebuild relationships with estranged scientist relatives in advance so it saves you time later. So I spoke to Dave Powell from the excellent environmental podcast Sustainababble. Dave is the Environment Lead at the New Economics Foundation, and long-time listeners may remember him from all the way back to episode 10 last year, when I spoke to him about the then budget's effects on the then-environment. Well, spoilers, not enough has happened since then, so I thought it best to get Dave back and give us a wee update on all things natural and disaster Hope you enjoy. Here's Dave. The last few weeks of weather have been something like a Roland Emmerich film, uh, looking at them around the world. Um... They've been quite terrifying. How have people been affected by all the recent hurricanes and floods around the globe? And is this something we're likely to see more and more of in coming years? <laughs>
1: Yes. Uh, Well, people have been affected uh, a lot. So let's just look at just to start with, and you know, there's a real tendency to do this because everyone's just interested in the ones that hit America, right? But let's just to start with look at Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. So um, the time of recording this, we're still dealing with the aftermath of the the latter of those huge Category 5, Category 4 hurricanes that hit uh, Florida, Texas, those parts of America, also hit the Caribbean, hit Cuba. um, And and have caused colossal economic damage. Um, One of the things I think it's worth thinking about, actually, is uh, what determines the damage that a hurricane causes. And there's generally a couple of things. Firstly, uh, how damaging is the hurricane, or indeed any natural disaster for that matter? How big is the flood? How severe is the heat wave? But then secondly, who does it affect? Who does it hit? Um, And what, of course, we're seeing as global population, Rise, but also as people increasingly move to uh, move to sort of more vulnerable areas, is that people are getting more and more affected by a greater number of hurricanes. So you're seeing more and more impact happening. Um, so those are the two things. We will talk about this as we go on. Firstly, are hurricanes, are natural disasters getting worse? Yes, they are, and climate change looks like it's a factor in that. Secondly, are more people being hit by them? Yes, they are, um, and one of the reasons for that is because people are spreading more into vulnerable kind of vulnerable kind of areas. It's reckoned that Hurricane Harvey, which was the one that hit Texas and hit all the oil refineries around there, they think that's going to be the most damaging natural disaster ever in terms of economic damage. That's an important thing to think about. And of course, the reason for that is it's gone and hit all these oil refineries. It's hit, um, you know, it's massively affected uh, Texas's ability to export oil. Um, and so it's had a huge impact in that kind of sense. Uh, but, you know, even before that, there was there were floods in Peru earlier this year, caused $3 billion worth of damage. Uh, Cyclone Debbie in Queensland earlier this year caused just short of $3 billion in damage. So you're seeing more and more damaging events that are happening as a result of a uh, greater, greater number of natural disasters.
2: It's... Um... Yeah, it's funny because I didn't think, I should also say, I always find it very hard that we give them these names. Like Cyclone Debbie does sound like a sort of 70s sitcom, uh, you know, <laughs> but but um, so I, I didn't realise that we take into account all the damage that then is caused by the effects of the hurricane rather than the immediate damage uh you know, I mean, so so for example, are we also looking at with Hurricane Irma? Um, I've seen the pictures from NASA that they've taken away all the fauna and the uh, greenery from a lot of Caribbean islands. Is that then taken into account as you know that the regrowth of that or, or lack of that's taken into account as hurricane damage as well? Is it?
1: I should think that probably isn't taken into account. I confess I don't know precisely how they categorise all of that thing. You obviously could, you know, if you wanted to put an economic cost on that or, a, or a, you know, more of a sort of general amenity cost on it, you could do that. Generally, what this is looking at is the amount of money that has to be spent by people to fix the thing that has that has happened. Um, now, one of the things, Michael um, might want to talk about this a bit, one of the things, of course, is that generally if you're richer, you're more likely to have insurance. You're more likely to be able to uh, replace your property if it's been damaged um, than if you're poorer. If you live in a city, you're more likely to be able to spend money on something than if you live in the rural population. So those numbers alone don't tell you anything. And the fact that, you know, the fact that Harvey's damage is so sort of steered by the damage to oil refineries tells you that you have to be a bit careful about what you consider to be Actual economic damage, but still the trend is the trend is very very clear. And a statistic that I saw in the Economist while getting ready for this: since 1970, the number of natural disasters every year has quadrupled. So there's now 400 a year um, around the globe, which is you know pretty clear of a of a trend in one direction.
2: Yeah, that's terrifying. So I mean, let's just uh, come to that for, for the moment. We'll, we'll come back to climate change in a second, but these. Uh, something i've seen mentioned that I, I don't think a lot of people think about is natural disasters do have unequal impacts don't they and it does affect uh, people from poorer countries far more than those who aren't and you said so is that mainly because of insurance costs and things like that or are there other reasons as well
1: yeah well this is one of the things to really uh, to sort of take a bit of a step back and look at natural disasters and what they actually are i mean what they generally are is a disruption to areas where the bits that are the most stressed the bits that are the most marginal the bits where life is already a bit touch and go um suddenly get you know hit with huge wave of new pressure literally in some cases so what you are going to see from a natural disaster kind of by definition is that if your house is less well built if you live in a less uh, the infrastructure in your place is less good if the disaster response is less good if there's less social protection all of these things which we know Across the world are, you know, poor people just suffer more. There is environmental injustice. There isn't enough. There is rampant inequality in the way the world works. And natural disasters just kind of exacerbate that. Not only that, but generally, when a disaster has kind of been and gone, uh, look at somewhere like New Orleans, you know the people that can ship out ship out, but the people that can't stay behind and so what you get over time you know you'll get people who can afford to build big sandbanks around their around their properties continuing to do so you'll get people who can move in land afford to do that continuing to do so, and the people that can't will stay there so kind of just at a conceptual level it makes it makes perfect sort of sense really mm. um, and What I think is particularly interesting as well, I mean, I I was really struck by the coverage around and this is not a surprise, really. But look at the coverage around Harvey and Irma, the, the two recent hurricanes. Pretty much the only stuff people are really interested in is either when it hits, you know, in Western media anyway, either when it hits America, which, of course, makes for, you know, great coverage, particularly with Donald Trump and his views on climate change, or recently in Britain when it hits British territories. And then we get a huge amount of coverage. But we don't, if if you compare the floods in Peru that happened in the spring of 2017, or Cyclone Debbie in Queensland, and compare the coverage of that to uh, the coverage of things that hit uh, America, you'll see there's, a, there's an inequality, if you like, in what bits of it we, get, we care about, what bits of it we're asked to, to care about. And actually across the world, I mean, look at the what is a natural disaster anyway. Look at the heat wave in Pakistan. Uh, there was one earlier this year where temperatures got over 50 degrees. You know, wow. uh, two years ago, there was a heat wave where 2,000 people died of temperatures of 50 degrees. You know, these are things, natural disasters affect everyone around the world. And it's in the poorer countries that generally, as far as Western media is concerned anyway, it tends to be much more invisible.
2: Sure, because I mean, as well as Hurricane Harvey and Irma, we've had all the flooding in Bangladesh and Nepal um, that I haven't really seen on the news very much at all. I think there were a couple of days where it was mentioned and it seems to have been ignored since.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, that tells us as much about one of the things about natural disasters. It tells us as much about how we run our society, the things that we're interested in, the stories that we tell. As anything else, you know, and you can look at things like coverage of elections to see that we're far more interested in elections in America than we are elections in Peru. Similarly, we're far more interested in natural disasters in America than we are natural disasters in Peru. But around the world, you know, this is a global, a global issue, um, and it's only on the rise. Right.
2: And speaking of what the media is interested in, one of the other things uh, that's been quite evident, I've noticed a lot of people complain about, is the lack of mention of climate change in quite a lot of reporting and in politicians' comments. Um, How much of the recent natural disasters can be blamed directly on human-made climate change? Um, You know, is there, I I mean, I'm I'm fairly certain, (laughs) personally, I'm fairly sure it is. But, you know, is there, how much uh, can we definitely point it at that?
1: Uh, so I'm going to challenge the exam question a bit because I think that's sure. one of the, uh, well, that's one of the problems. Almost the way you've just worded that question is the problem. So you, you, the problem is your word directly. Um, so the, the, the honest answer is directly. How much of this can be caused uh, attributed to climate change? Probably none of it. it it's not like you know if, if we're in a bar and you annoy me and I connect my fist with your teeth. You know I have I have directly punched you in the face, right? That is a thing I have done. But climate change doesn't work like that. Um, Michael Mann, who is this uh, incredibly, not the director, the other guy, uh, prof- incredibly good professor of uh, climate and energy and one of the leading lights for years, has been talking about this, obviously, in the last week and saying the best way to think about a hurricane, for example, is not to think of it as a big gusty wind, but to think of it as a heat engine. So this is basically what hurricanes are They're caused in the first place by uh, warm air coming from somewhere like the Sahara Desert, hitting cold air in the oceans, and that obviously creates a a reaction. And to cut a very long story short, the more heat you've got as a hurricane crosses the ocean, the warmer that the oceans are, the more energy there is in the system, and the more powerful the hurricane is going to be. So hurricanes are caused by the collision of hot and cold. The more heat you've got on land, the more heat you've got in the oceans, the more you're going to get. Over the last year, over the last decades, the oceans have got warmer, So the science is totally clear. That should tell us hurricanes are going to be stronger. Sea level has risen over the last decades by about half a foot around the world. So it is more likely that you're going to get flooding. You're going to get worse storm surges. It's all about likelihood. So what climate change is doing is it's increasing the energy in the system. It's making it all a bit hotter. It's making it all a bit more chaotic. Anyone who's vaguely familiar with how a kettle works or how a hot bath works knows that the more heat you've got, the more energy you've got, the more impact that can have. So that's what we're seeing happening. It's totally consistent with what the climate science has been saying for years, that this is what we will see. We'll see an increase in natural disasters, flooding and droughts, more energy, more extremes, entirely consistent. And one of the things, you know, that that you hear Hurricane Harvey was talked about as a one in 500 years storm, Um, well that doesn't work like that anymore this is old data you know it might have been a one in 500 years sort of episode before we started messing around with the climate system chucking more energy into it Um, but it doesn't work like that anymore we've loaded the dice as Michael Mann says you know we need to we need to really go back and think again about how likely this stuff is to happen which is significantly more likely and the thing is we've only just started you know global temperatures have only risen by uh, best, but just slightly under a degree, 0.5 degrees since pre-industrial times. That's not very much in the scheme of things, it's certainly not very much compared to the trajectory of where we could be going um, unless we rapidly cut emissions. We could be looking at 3.5 degrees, 4 degrees, 6 degrees, who knows you'd see just how little extra energy is needed in a very complex, delicate, balanced system like the global climate for more disasters to be a thing. Um, So yeah, I I think it can confuse people, this idea of of cause and effect. And it's very easy if you're a climate sceptic or you're slightly overawed by the complexity of it all, or if you just don't really understand. It's very easy just to go, well, hurricanes have always happened and they'll still always happen. Sure, but we're increasing the chances because we're pumping more energy into the system. And this is the, we better get you Used
2: to it so I mean that's nice and cheery um I, it's, it's very but, but it's, it's very it's very depressing but i mean the this is also what we're seeing now is that's the result of it building up for years um are we going to see this accelerate then considering we have now the kind of White House administration's views on science and climate change and by views I mean sort of general ignorance towards them um, views, yeah. yeah absolute lack of views yeah so does this I mean as you, as you said earlier that we're going to see more and more of this does this mean we're you know America's one of the biggest uh, causes of pollution in, in the world aren't they I think is it third after I can't remember it's China first isn't it and then I think second or third so do we could this kind of rapidly escalate as a result of that is this very you know is it how dangerous is it that they've got these ridiculous lack of views
1: Yeah, there's a lot in there, isn't there? Um, So firstly, what what do we know? We know that look at the Paris agreement on climate change. This was signed back at the end of December 2015. Already seems a very, very long time ago. The America thought it was a good idea once Um, that commits the world to trying to keep temperatures to Uh, no more than a two-degree rise, ideally 1.5 degrees. But all of the different things that the countries have signed up to, um, if if people actually do that, we're looking at a a three-and-a-half-degree rise, the idea being we weren't pledging to do enough anyway. And that was before Donald Trump came along and said, actually, we're not even going to do that. We're not even going to do the bits that we have pledged to do. We're going to tear up this clean energy plan that Barack Obama made. We're going to pull the U.S. out. We're going to remove its funding to support other countries. All of these things. So the first thing is the world in general was not doing enough. And then secondly, America, as the world's biggest economy and one of the world's largest polluters, was not doing enough either. And it really, you know, it isn't great that at this time of you know, climate change has always been seen, I think, by some people and still is as a thing that will happen tomorrow to foreign people I'll never meet, you know, that has no impact on me at all. No, it is happening now. You know, what we are seeing, the science is absolutely clear. There is a a decent chance that hurricanes that are around this year are stronger than they would otherwise been uh, because of climate change. That is a thing that is happening now. Um, And yet the fact that we're still, the the leader of the free world, for want of a better world, is still able to pull America out, to deny this is happening, to simultaneously pledge huge relief packages to Florida and to, you know, all the places that have been hit, whilst also saying that climate change is not a threat, boggles belief. But but this is is not a good thing. Now, the simple fact of the matter is, for all that the world wasn't doing enough um, the most I, I found it just as heartening by the fact by how everyone has reacted to Donald Trump on climate um, as anything else so when he announced he was pulling America out of the Paris agreement world leader after world leader lined up and said um, you're an idiot what do you think you're doing you know and that was uh, including you know loads of mayors of American cities in whose name he said he was doing this you know I'm pulling it I' pulling America out of the Paris agreement because it's hurting our local economies too much well the leaders of those local economies Stood up and said, no, mate, you know, this is, this is something we've got to do. And the future for our economies is not coal and oil, it's renewable energy. And that's a really good thing to see. So Donald Trump single-handedly can't derail this thing. But at a time when we need all hands to the pump, it's really not great news.
0: Hold up.
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We're going to be back with Dave in a minute, but first... Hardly global broadcast. I know you listeners. You're out there listening along thinking, put with UK political party conference season coming up, there simply isn't any politics news happening in the UK at all. Well, hey, fear not, par pollers. It turns out stuff sometimes happens in other countries as well. What, what? I know, right? And this week, in particular, there are some very important happenings happening over there in that there Germany. So join me on my audio plane as we get a shitty Ryanair sound flight to check out political happenings in the elsewhere. Wow, that was just audio, and yet still so uncomfortable and irritating. Still, you do get what you pay for. So, Germany, home of the worst and best of Europe. Do you see what I did there? See, my C in German GCSE was totally worth it. Sehr gut, in fact. Okay, I will stop now. Germany's federal election is on September the 24th, where German citizens will vote to elect members of the Bundestag, the sort of equivalent of the House of Commons, except with a much better name that makes it sound like a big lad's weekend. All right, lads, who's ready for the Bundestag? And that sentence I've said right there is exactly why so many European countries hate the Brits. Anyway, these elections are done with mixed-member proportional representation, which is part first-past-the-post, part proportional representation, yet somehow neither, and altogether baffling for someone like me who's from a country where people get confused putting a cross in one box. But all in all, with a week to go, it looks like the Christian Democratic Union, Angela Merkel's party, are still in a very comfortable lead, with current polls saying they're at 36% support, with the Social Democratic Party, led by Martin Schulz, at just 22 So it doesn't really appear much to report, and seems quite a lot like Merkel will once again be Chancellor of Germany. Except, if you take a little look towards the smaller parties, you'll notice that there are some frightening changes to Germany's outlook. For a start, in third place below the two main parties, with 11% in the polls, is the AFD, or Alternative for Germany, an anti-immigration far-right party. Yeah, you make up your own easy jokes about how you'd think that of all the countries in the world, Deutschland might have learnt not to do this again. Go on, you do it. AFD were originally set up to oppose Europe bailing out indebted EU members, you know, like Greece. And you can already tell that they're a lovely bunch if their reason for forming was not to help people. They already feel like the political equivalent of a troll account. Since that fun phase, they've morphed and evolved into wanting to be even less helpful towards people, and reject all of Merkel's policies aiding refugees, and they want to reject any asylum seekers whose applications are rejected, regardless if sending them home would put them in danger or not. I can't work out if they're just nasty or self-harmers who are too meek to hurt themselves but really believe in karma. The AFD want to close all EU borders, deport all foreign-born criminals from the age of 12 upwards, and set up camps for migrants. Yeah, really. Camps for migrants. I mean, have they not even. Have they never read a. Anyway, they supposedly have the far-right and a more moderate wing of the party, but the relationship between the two sides of AFD is for the far-right to say something awful, like when far-right representative 76-year-old Alexander Gowland said Germany should be proud of its soldiers in both world wars, and then the moderate side, represented by 38-year-old Alice Weidel, will jump in and say, hey, she disagrees with his choice of words, but overall she agrees with the sentiment. It's kind of like a fascism normalisation generator. I mean, you may as well put Nazi slogans into Google Translate back and forth until they just sound like a newsreader saying them. And here is where it gets worrying if it wasn't already hugely worrying. They are garnering support from all the mainstream parties who each have disillusioned supporters. Left-wing voters want more workers' rights, right-wing voters want less immigration, and neither find those things with the CDU or SPD, and so they're turning to populists like AFD instead. Is this all sounding familiar? Well, because if it doesn't, then bear in mind that constipated hate-newt Nigel Farage, known for passing between arseholes like the game piece in fart tennis, went to visit the AFD and announced his support for them last week. Which is odd, because I thought he was very against European unions. Though, to be fair, Farage's appearance there did mainly seem to be to complain that Brexit wasn't being mentioned enough in the German election. Because again, he's obviously changed his mind about politicians from other countries meddling elections they have absolutely fuck all to do with. God, if life was a TV script, he'd definitely have been killed off by now due to continuity complaints from viewers and the fact he's such a loathsome prick. So the issue is, with the part proportional representation type of election in Germany, the AFD could gain seats in the Bundestag for the first time, which would mean they could have influence over policies. And an even bigger worry than that is that even though Merkel is looking set to win this time, it's very likely going to be the last time she runs as Chancellor, meaning that unless an obvious contender arises, there could well be a power vacuum in Germany in four years' time. And much like when you're doing the hoovering, horrible creepy crawlies get sucked into a power vacuum. Not to look at Germany's history too much, yet again, as us Brits uh, want to do pretty much every bloody football match and more, but, you know, there was a power vacuum in Germany in 1933 as well. But, 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 look, look, it's not all doom and gloom because just beneath AFD in the polls are the left party at 10%, the free democrats who are a very business friendly party at 9% and then the greens at 8%. And more importantly, proving very popular with young people are a party called d party or the party, which sounds a lot less like a threat to other politicians to our English ears. They were set up by editors of a satirical magazine and they started getting attention in 2014 when one of their members was elected to the EU parliament. D-Party have some very fun, silly policies, such as tackling the gender pay gap by paying all managers according to their bra size. And they class themselves as a sort of progressive populist party. They took over various defunct AFD Facebook pages to show how they'd use bots to reach voters, and they changed all the Facebook page names from things like Love of the Homeland to Love of Hummus, and then demanding that users of the group follow their very strict rules such as all criticism of Muslims must be directed towards Mecca. And while D-Party are not expected to reach the 5% of the vote needed to get seats in the Bundestag, they do now have over 25,000 members as a party, which is just under the 26,000 membership of AFD. Considering that D-Party are appealing to younger voters too, there is every chance that by four years' time, if they keep going, they could hit that 5% as those younger people can finally vote. And as D-Party candidate Nico Semsrott says, the AFD is built on hate and we are not. Hate and laughter are the exact opposite. We are the serious populists, the good ones. And if kindness and a sense of humour isn't promising for the future of Germany, I don't know what is. Saying that, I don't really agree with their views that hate and laughter are the exact opposite. I mean, if we all laugh at hateful, hateful Nigel Farage, isn't that the best of both worlds? I'll report back on the results in a couple of weeks' time, but until then, viel Glück Deutschland! And now, back to Dave. Dave this is probably quite an impossible question really uh, because how does anyone get into the mind of people like Trump but why do you think there's still a resistance now to accepting that climate change is happening I mean because surely there comes a point where money isn't that useful against a hurricane you know or against an earthquake well, um, if, of, you, yeah. if you
1: make a big enough house out of it I think you can probably you know if you make papier out of all of that all of that money you could probably build quite a strong, quite a strong- <laughs> well so why why don't people uh, I don't know well let me ask you a question really i guess are you how scared are you by climate change and i don't mean scared in a kind of intellectual sense but like scared in your guts scared Uh, i'm I'm Um,
2: really quite scared about it i find it absolutely terrifying and especially the more i read and the more i hear about the you know the arctic melting and things like that i I find it really scary and i think but not so much uh, in a way probably not so much for me i think things are going to get worse in my life but i'm very scared about the idea of my kids or grandkids and, and what world they Living. I've seen a lot of sci fi films and it terrifies me. <laughs>
1: It is scary. And I think, you know, I reckon you're probably in the minority. So I'm, I, in a way, you know, it's, it's not great that you're scared, but I think it's a good thing because we should be scared. There was this um, this huge debate ran a couple of months ago over the summer. And I don't know if you saw the piece that this guy whose name I forget. So sorry, guy. But he um, wrote, this, <laughs> wrote this piece in The New Yorker, which uh, was basically about saying, let me tell you how bad this could be. And it was just saying all of this is within the realms of scientific possibility. So, you know, everyone talks. Talks with climate change about three and a half degree temperature rise. They take the sort of mid-range of what could happen. And this guy wrote this massive long piece which said, no, like it could be this bad. It could be 97% of all life on Earth is dead, bad. It could be the permafrost melting, unleashing all of the diseases that wiped out the Neanderthals, bad. You know, it could be that bad. Um, and and basically said, sorry to have to tell you this, but, you know, you're not scared enough. was essentially his point. You know, there is a, a material possibility that what we are doing to the planet could wipe us out. Um, And his argument was, we need to talk about that. Why don't we talk about that? And then this huge debate raged with people going, oh, you can't scare people. You can't say things like that. How are people supposed to react to to that kind of information? Um, Well, you know, we are talking about something. The reason I asked you the question, we're talking about something... That's almost impossible to get your head around at that kind of level. Like the scary stuff that you're scared of, you can probably vaguely imagine. But we could be doing something terrifying to the planet. And I think at a very basic level, I'll talk in a second about the politics of it, at a very basic level... I think our tiny little mushy monkey brains are just not very good at thinking about that kind of thing. I think, you know, we're programmed to look at whether or not there's a tiger in the tree. We're not particularly interested in whether or not that tree is going to be here in 20 years time. That's the kind of way that we that we think about stuff. Some people, I think, um, are, you know, are, are perhaps, you know, worse at dealing with that than others. And one of the great great shames. I do think it's a shame. When the book is written about the history of climate science and climate change and how we did it um, or didn't do it, we'll look at how did this become such a partisan thing? How did it become a thing in America that if you are right-wing, you somehow have to think climate change is a hoax? How did that happen? I was doing a a debate, Al Gore was over um, in the UK about three weeks ago launching his new film, uh, an inconvenient sequel about climate change. And the only thing that, you know, they wheeled out all of these reports Public and commentators to debate against people who think climate change is happening because Al Gore apparently is part of the problem. You know, this guy is coming out with his, with his climate science, and because he's from the left, that inherently means it's a communist plot designed to enslave us all to the red menace, right? And it's you know, so there's all sorts of stuff going on, but some, what you're dealing with is the way that the world works. And the way that the world works is very complicated. And and the planet is a complicated ball of chemistry and physics. Everything that we do to it interacts with everything else on it. It interacts with us in countless kind of ways. And if all you've really ever sort of been wired to think about is individual freedom and I should get to do what I want, then it's quite difficult to bung those two things together. You can't simultaneously think, if you're a right-wing, neoliberal American, you can't simultaneously think that everyone should be allowed to do whatever they want. And simultaneously that governments have to stop us doing whatever we want because it's going to destroy the only place in the universe we can live. You know, it creates this massive cognitive dissonance. Um, And we need to find a way through that, I think. We need to find a way through it quickly. And in the UK and in Europe, you don't get that same bipartisan kind of thing. There's been bits of it, but generally everyone agrees. The Tory party manifesto in the UK said climate change is a massive problem and we're going to fix it. You know, everyone kind of agrees with that, not in America. Um, and that's something, you know, it's, it's a real problem for the world Those.
2: Sure, yeah, because it requires a sort of collective thinking, I suppose, doesn't it, rather than the uh, individualistic thinking, which we we have quite a lot now in the Western world. I mean, one of the the things I've always quite enjoyed um, is the uh, thing that the astronauts get, they call the overview effect, which is when they look back at Earth for the first time and they become overwhelmed with love for Earth and they often come back as environmentalists and humanists because they realise it's just one planet and we're all on it together. And I always think that's really beautiful, yeah.
1: And there was that, um, you know, it's passed a bit into folk but it's generally thought that the birth of the modern environmentalist movement as in you know the, the movement within rich uh, western societies that the birth of that moment was when we went to space and we turned the camera around and we looked at earth and took a picture of it and there's that famous picture called uh, i think it's called earth rising which you've probably seen and if you haven't you can imagine it a picture of the first time we had ever seen in color earth not from earth And, you know, it is generally thought to be that was the moment when people went, oh, bloody hell, uh, that's a bit of a precious place isn't it maybe we should maybe we should look after it um and it is definitely the case that you know th- th- this is very much a kind of rich westerny sort of perspective it's definitely the case for the majority of people in the world the vast majority of people the people who you know are the ones who are really affected by environmental change environmental consciousness is much more part of how they live because you know the crops are already marginal thanks uh, floods are already a risk thanks drought is already a thing you know and if you just make that slightly more if you you tilt that balance even more, it's those people that will come out of it first and foremost. So it, it's one of the great tragedies and injustices of the whole thing that the countries that have caused the biggest, most of the climate damage, the rich countries that have produced all the oil, are the ones who are now sort of least bothered about doing anything about it because it means voluntarily changing how they how they go about things.
2: Sure. So I mean, so well, a couple couple of last questions really, but what? Uh, do you think then, because I, I also wonder, like, if more people, um, as you said, the UK, we're fairly good at thinking about it anyway, but we've had an in, quite a big increase in air pollution here in a number of cities. Um, and do you think that the sadly, the way that most people are going to change their minds about it is by being affected by it? Um, and then the sort of second part to that question is. Is there still time to prevent it? I mean, it seems to be taking a long time for people to come around to wanting to mm. prevent it. But is there still time to prevent things getting worse or are we now past the threshold?
1: Oh, heavens. I'm going to do the second one of those. OK. Uh, <laughs> um, can we prevent it? Depends what it is. In a way, this is back to when you were asking me about uh, does climate cause um, okay. hurricanes. It's not, it's not as binary as that. So the whole thing is a continuum, right? What we, we do know that if the world stopped emitting all greenhouse gases now, we would still get more climate change because the way the gases work, you know, as anyone sort of understands the chemistry of the greenhouse effect, is that there's stuff already up there which is going to continue warming even if we don't put any more up. So we know that, um, but we also know that every shred of greenhouse gas less that we emit means less energy in the system means less chance of risk, less chance of runaway stuff. Uh, people have always picked this This two degrees um, target is the one that's generally sort of held as that's a good idea not to let it go past that. You know, is it 1.9 degrees? Is it 2.1 degrees? This is it, It's a sort of nice convenient round number that's just designed to get people thinking that two degrees is probably better than three degrees, which is probably better than four degrees, which is definitely better than five degrees. You know, so th- that's the question. It's not like, is it, are we going to get it or are we not going to get it? We have already got it. It is already here. It is already happening. We're probably going to get some more of it. What we absolutely don't want to happen, and this is the thing, is at the moment, the things that we're seeing, as far as we understand it, are more energy in the system, but the system is still basically working in the way that it should. So you're getting more natural disasters, more droughts, more floods, but that pretty much when things return to, you know, quote, calm, things work as they did before. What you don't want to get to is this thing called tipping points, which is basically, let's take an example of the uh, permafrost in Siberia, for example. Underneath that is enough methane to make everything we've already put into the atmosphere seem like child's play. A colossal amount of methane lies buried underneath something that's supposed to be permanently frozen permafrost but if that melts and we're starting it starting to see it melting then we start to have runaway effects you know if snow leaves the arctic and exposes the dark rock uh, the antarctic sorry and exposes the dark rock that's underneath it you've got a much less reflective thing happening more heat's going to be absorbed so you start to get the tipping points that way so that's the trick is keeping it down below the level at which the thing still works in a way that supports life on Earth, even if it's more difficult at the extremes. So that's what we've got to do is just, you know, every shred that we can do, let's do it. Let's not obsess about is it happening or not. Let's just get on and do it. And in answer to the the other part of your question, I mean, I think we need everything. There's at least sort of seven different things we need to sort out if we're going to do something about climate change so we do need to get all the laws and things right and we need to make people do stuff that they're not currently thinking about but also yeah look at things like air pollution you know one of the main reasons that china is doing so much on climate change and it really is you know huge amounts of green investment going in over there world leader in electric vehicles those sort of things one of the main reasons for that isn't just the climate point of view but because their cities are so foul that the air kills people you know much worse than we've got over here We've got pretty terrible air over here as well um and one of the reasons for that is that this is also complicated you know there's that great image um this cartoon that's been doing the rounds now for you know 20 years in environment circles of someone at a conference uh, giving a presentation saying oh sorry we got climate change wrong it, it's not happening don't worry about it and someone at the back stands up and says wait a minute you mean we cleaned up all the air saved the forests protected the oceans and got cleaner transport for nothing you know, <laughs> the point is that what what the things we have to do to fix climate change are also things we have to do to make our cities greener and make our air's clean, air cleaner and deal with urban sprawl and all of these sorts of things. So a bit of me thinks we need this radical ecological awakening where people really understand that we are part of this system and the system is part of us and that we're not somehow God's species separate to it. And I suppose we do need a bit of that. But frankly, we also just need whatever works. You know, we need the economy to start uh, taxing fossil fuels properly. We need the law to reflect it. We need people's behavior to change. If people are motivated to do something about climate change because it's in their own self-interest, well, you know, I'd rather they had it of the collective good of humanity but right now i just take anything because i think that's kind of that's kind of where we're at and ultimately this is all in our own self-interest and ultimately it is air pollution is ultimately the same thing as climate change not scientifically but from the point of view of we cause damage through what we do that affects other people maybe we better not cause that damage
2: yeah yeah it's i've always been baffled by the the argument against tackling climate change simply because i think even if you don't believe in it surely you would like cleaner water cleaner air <laughs> a nicer environment around you and your individual life um, it's sort of uh, yeah i find it very bizarre to to not want that for yourself uh, if nothing else um uh, one last question for you uh, just to finish um as i ask everyone on this podcast and i think i asked you last time you were on um apart from yourself obviously and probably non-director michael mann um who else should people look up or follow for current info on climate change issues and natural disasters and things like that who, who do you follow who do you recommend? well
1: well obviously listen to the uk's finest comedy environmental podcast *Sustainable which is out every week and um, that's a good a good place to start um i always i, I love the work of bill mckibben whom um, who's this veteran environmental activist and author he's one of the people who he writes so powerfully and persuasively on this stuff he's actually written a really great piece about natural disasters i think if you just google Bill McKibben, Natural Disasters, and find the most recent thing he's written, when he makes the case incredibly powerfully and poetically that says, no, this is happening now he makes a case, he talks about um, parts of the recent uh, of Hurricane Harvey, parts of that was a one in half a million year event. You know, in some places it was so unprecedented that this has to signify a new kind of normal. And he does it also brilliantly. So I I do recommend his stuff. Um, I recommend Naomi Klein, who's doing some really great work on this. And actually, what's really good about this is the more you read people like Michael Mann or Naomi Klein or Bill McKibben, you realise that actually in America, the, the view that we might sometimes get over here, that it's all, you know, Donald Trump and his fellow uh, neoliberals just running things. Actually, it's, you know, he is in the minority even over there, you know, and, and that there are huge amounts of people in America and around the world telling it like it is, but telling it in a way that inspires urgency and that and agency and inspires us to do something about it.
2: Huge thanks to Dave for having that fascinating if occasionally terrifying chat with me. And um, That is the problem with any interview about climate change is that afterwards you generally just sort of panic about how awful it all is and how everyone's going to die and how difficult it all is to handle and then you spend the rest of your day eating dinner with a horrible feeling of ominousness over you until you forget about it. That's what I do anyway. But of course everything David said is exactly why it's very important to swat up on it, put pressure on your MPs and people who can't actually do something about it and generally stand up for people like me who aren't very good at swimming. If you would like to hear more, Dave, and why wouldn't you, then do check out his excellent, excellent podcast with Ollie Hayes called Sustainababble, which is uh, a weekly show all about environmental solutions, but they do it in a very, very fun and interesting way. Uh, they have just come back from their summer break, and the first episode back is a fascinating interview with documentarian and explorer Bruce Parry, who did that brilliant Beeb Show Tribe a few years ago. Do check it out. Um, Sustainababble can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and all of those podcast things, uh, and you can also find it on Twitter at The Babble Wagon. And Dave's personal Twitter is at power so do check that out too. Uh, also, the people that Dave recommends following are Bill McKibben, who is on Twitter at bill mckibben. That's M C K I B B E N. And non-director Michael Mann, who is Michael E Mann M A N on Twitter too. And as I say every Bloomin' Show, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or something you'd like me to interview people about, then please, please, please do let me know. And thank you to both Leo and Emma for sending some excellent suggestions that I am looking into. Um, if you have excellent suggestions as well, or even just okay ones, then do let me know at Parpol bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, or Broadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, put it in a ten-point plan and release it in a major paper while something more important is happening, and I'll probably read it as a welcome distraction at being angry with something else instead. Again, email is probably easier. Brexit 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 While writing this week's show, it was reported that Oliver Robbins, the top Brexit official at the Department for Exiting the European Union, had left his post. Yes, the man in charge of leaving leaves, leaving leavers with a lack of um, leavership, probably. Who'd have expected so many leaves in autumn, eh? OK, I, I will stop now. Robbins has instead gone to a job at Number 10, more directly working for Theresa May, so it's not as if he's escaped the dark side and turned over a new leave. But rumours are that Robbins did escape the DEXEU because of tension between him and mouldy prawncracker David Davis. Which does make sense, as Davis seems like the sort of man that could make the Dalai Lama need a stress ball. But what's really worth noting is Robin's resignation follows the departure of several other important figures in the Brexit department, including Lord Bridges, who left after the June election, and has recently stated that the UK must be honest about the complexity and scale of leaving the EU. So, you know, I'm sure he was super pleased to see Boris explain it'll all be okay, because it'll all be okay. Though, to be fair, the only complexity of scale Boris understands is when he's trying to find the correct foundation for his lizard skin. So, here's the thing though with Robbins leaving, and the others. Is what state does that mean that the Department of Exiting the European Union is in now? Is there anyone left who actually has a clue what they're doing? And is this also an indication of rats leaving a rapidly sinking process? Have we been assuming this charge towards a hard Brexit and crappy bravado at the EU was all idiotic waving, when in fact, it was just a mass drowning? It would mean, if that was the case, that you could look at Boris's article on Friday as perhaps an attempt to get fired from his post as Foreign Secretary before several gallons of shit hits the industrial fan. I mean, why else would he bring back the £350 million figure, which has been hugely, hugely disputed? And, in fact, let's just quickly get this straight, if you didn't know it already. I have mentioned it in a previous episode, but this idea that when we leave the EU we'll get £350 million towards the NHS, well, here's the thing. In 2016, the UK paid the EU £13.1 billion to their budget as agreed. EU spending on the UK that year was £4.5 billion, so that means we've only given £8.6 billion. There's also about £1 billion that we give the EU for the private sector that go directly into research budgets that often benefit UK-based companies. So after all that, if you add it all up and minus it away, the UK gives the EU about £120 million a week, or £17 million a day, or per person 26p a day, which is about the same price as a penny sweet will be once we leave the EU due to crazy inflation and unaffordable exports. Of course, we could all give that 26p each to the NHS, but it's not up to us, and chances are there'll be other areas of infrastructure that will now really need help without EU funding, you know, like all of South Wales. Some other choice bits of shit in amongst the shitcorn in Boris's article include allaying concerns about car manufacturing in the UK by saying traditional car companies will vanish within 20 years due to automated cars anyway. Yeah, that's reassuring. I mean, don't worry everyone, Brexit might lose you your car jobs, but robots would have stolen them anyway. Idiot. Boris has now backtracked from some of his statement and seems to be suggesting that the UK will accept the MFF fee, or Multi-Annual Financial Framework, which are all the projects that we were involved in contractually in the EU till 2020. And that makes sense because, as I've mentioned before, it won't look great for deals with other countries if we keep making a big point about how brilliantly we break contracts. Therese May has now commented on Boris's article by saying simply, Boris is Boris, which I guess, much like Brexit is Brexit, means no one understands what he is but ploughs on despite mass unease. May has also assured the press that the UK Brexit position is being driven from the front. More bullshit talk, but considering that the government are relentlessly arse about face with everything, who knows which bit is actually in the front. What we do know is that in his State of the Union address, EU President Jean-Claude Juncker announced a new reform package for the EU with a push for all applicable member states to join the euro and the Schengen area to expand to Romania and Bulgaria. Both things are the sorts of announcements that pre-Brexit would have caused UKIP to spontaneously combust, and to be fair, quite a few moderates to feel uneasy as well. But it's also part and parcel of EU growth beating the US for the last two years, unemployment at a nine-year low across the EU, and eight million jobs being created since Juncker became president. President. Juncker made a point of saying that the EU will move on for Brexit as it's not the future of Europe, and I can't help but feeling that this was all the verbal equivalent of when you see pictures of an ex on Facebook on an amazing holiday due to their new high-paid job that they got when you left them and their brand new rich lover, while you're just staring at the pictures while sitting in your pants eating beans on toast and applying for jobs and crying. This week's Idiot Brexit comment comes from Andrea Leadsom, leader of the House of Commons, and mother. She said in a talk at the Institute of Government that, in leaving the EU, we will control our own money, own laws, own borders, and as the PM said, we will be a global leader in free trade. Of course, the issue with that is, I'm pretty sure we control all of that already, Andrea. I mean, what next? Pointing out that post-Brexit we can have our own queen and broadcasting corporation? Idiot. <laughs> is all for this week's show uh, yeah no partly big question again I'm sorry it will return soon I promise but not next week maybe the one after maybe the question should be when it does return when should it return uh, answers on a postcard please and then send me a picture of what you've written and then eat the postcard thank you for listening to this show and if you do enjoy please do spread the word like margarine and if you can donate to the show at patreon.com forward slash purple bro or ko-fi.com forward slash purple bro then please do and if you can't do that then please at least give it a review on your favorite podcast outlet or just and merchants thank you as always as well to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother the last skeptic for all the music um, his album is out end of september and it's called this is where it gets good and features guests such as the amazing koji radical um, and you can pre-order that album now from itunes and all those places um, and also uh, he has a podcast called thanks for trying which uh, the next step is going to be with doc brown and Chibuddy g so do check that out it is brilliant I'll be back next week with possibly a slightly shorter show, but nonetheless, one that will definitely, no doubt, have a look at the Lib Dem conference and, you know, whether or not they had enough people there to play a five-a-side, or, if otherwise, Nick Clegg and Tim Farron just took it in turns taking own goals, like they used to. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by the number 350 million, which is both the amount of years ago the Carboniferous Age was when spineless creatures wriggled the earth before evolving or becoming extinct, and it's also the amount of pounds referenced in a dangerous lie that won't go extinct despite being only ever mentioned by a spineless creature.